everyone, we are AAALC, and we welcome you to our conversation. This will be a relaxed and open dialogue to give others a small window into how we think. Um, today, we have our regular cast of characters, Adam Meyer. We have Lemar Christie, Sharon Hall. We have Suzanne Mercer and a special guest from the Idaho Black History Museum, Philip Thompson. Philip, welcome to our podcast today. Thank you much for having me. All right. So, Philip... A lot of people don't understand, especially this this podcast is going out on all the wavelengths, uh, whether it be Apple or Google or Spotify. So it's national. Uh, They don't know that Idaho has its own Black History Museum. Right. And you're the director of that. So you want to give us a little insight into what you do? Um, So, yeah, long story short, the Idaho Black History Museum is housed in the first black church erected in Idaho. And it was a church that was actually built by my great, great and great, great, great grandfather. So I have to admit a bit of a bias there and a bit of a a protective um, disposition in the sense that um, my only concern is to ensure that that thrives and tell the history that is often overlooked as far as Idaho black history. Awesome. All right. So. Based on that, this this uh, podcast is is Juneteenth. Let's talk about it. What's our experiences? What have we what what do we know about Juneteenth as, as black folks? How have we celebrated it? And I can just speak for myself and, and we can go down the line and then we'll, we'll give you uh, an opening, um, Philip, to kind of go into to why we brought you in. But from my my own perspective, I my family uh, growing up in the Northwest, we really didn't celebrate the, the holiday at all or celebrate Juneteenth in any way. The only connection I had with Juneteenth is when I saw people in the South celebrating it when I was in. Yep, that was a warning. So I had no connection with Juneteenth myself. Um, so that that therefore, I, it's not really a holiday that our family really cel- celebrated very much. Sharon, what about you? How did how does Juneteenth connect to you? Well, of course, I I grew up in the South, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and uh, but we I did not our family did not celebrate Juneteenth, but of course we've seen a lot of celebrations that did take place, and still even as I can think about being a little girl and growing up, uh, we saw so much every day. It was uh, really we were not celebrating just one day because we had a lot of barriers that we had to cross, especially when it came to Ku Klux Klans and driving by plantations and looking at the slave houses and the plantation on the houses and the sugarcane fields and all of these things. We had constant reminders of the labor that our people were forced into that um, there was the reminders were always there. And so we really didn't do a lot of celebration as a family. Remar, how about you? Um, I only knew about Juneteenth two years ago, probably. (laughs) Just being from the Caribbean, we don't celebrate Juneteenth and never, honestly never heard about it until two years ago. Um, But I'm still doing my research on it because kind of like what Philip was talking about, I knew that it wasn't just that one day and then everything was good. There was still a lot of stuff that happened after that. So it's kind of one of those like conflicting um, holidays, I guess, where 
you celebrate what it's signifying, but you know that after that, there's a lot of stuff that happened. So I'm still new in the Juneteenth game, I guess. Still trying to do my research and figure out everything about it. So, Paul, how about you? Well, you you don't know this well, but uh, coming from England originally, um, you know, the Juneteenth is just not something that exists in that country um, at all. So my knowledge of it is very small. In fact, um, and, and honestly, Rima, you're talking about you heard about it for the first time two years ago. Last year was probably the first time I'd heard of it. Um, it was just something that, you know, in, in England, never heard of it. And why I hadn't heard anybody over here talk about it, I'm not too sure. Um, you know, there's so much history here that I can't possibly learn all of it. But this one, uh, this one's kind of important. So I was quite surprised. Well, it doesn't look like you just learned about it because you got the big Juneteenth flag behind you and everything. I know. I'm like, I want that. I want the flag. I want that flag. <laughs> Uh, I'll put it in the chat, but no, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's all about representing. On, I'm all about knowledge. I'm all about learning and uh, and passing on those learnings to other people as well. So yeah, really looking forward to this one. Adam, how about your your experience? Uh, growing up in the suburbs outside of Chicago, I didn't experience uh, much of it. I, I don't even really really recall hearing about it until I was uh, in North Texas going to college, and I it was just. You know, it was a black holiday um, and I didn't know what it was for. And I honestly wasn't curious back then. Um, after I moved to California, I remember being around in Oakland and I saw like a huge barbecue one weekend. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, after joining you guys, I started learning about it a little bit more. I think we're all doing a little bit of learning. Suzanne, how about you? For me, I'm from the Caribbean as well, and so we don't celebrate that, obviously. Uh, and when I came here, my experience, um, how should I say this? I chose not to um, be a part of Americans' history just because it was so negative. And, uh, I just didn't know how to handle that. Um, and so for a long time, I didn't, you know, I just kind of stuck myself, stuck my head in the sand um, and said, you know, of course, that's your history, not mine sort of sort of attitude. Uh, however, um, I did know about Juneteenth, um, but like I said, I didn't really um, choose to find out more about it. Uh, after I joined uh, AAALC, of course, I definitely know a lot more now and will continue to learn as everybody is uh, just because I've been here for a long time and it is now part of, I want to be a part of it, so to speak. And um, it is hard for me to emotionally, um, you know, learn and, and read and things like that and absorb that because it's it's to connect right yeah it's it, it's hard it is hard for me you know i remember watching roots when i was little and that was very very difficult for me my parents made me watch that and just to know that there that's our history here that's how many people have you know people have have lived that life and had that experience so it's hard for me to but uh, but anyway having said that i welcome 
and I'm happy now to learn more and and um, be a part of that journey. Before we move to Philip, I want to ask Remar because you guys have similar backgrounds, uh, Caribbean and coming over as an adult or well, you were more of a teenager, but did you have that connection? That connection of, to the history? Or lack of connection, I guess. Is um, black history to, to that to that whole thing. Yes and no. I'm like naturally curious. So I kind of I and I love learning about history. So naturally I would dive down and kind of learn about it. But I know that it's technically not my history, so there's a disconnect there. And there's also I don't want as bad as it sounds, I don't want American history to overweigh my Caribbean history because I don't want to lose that. And then my children to have no idea about that. So there's a delicate balance there because I've seen it with my wife. Her dad is from the Caribbean, but she doesn't know anything about really that side of his heritage. And I don't want us to like perpetuate that cycle. So there's a balance that I'm trying to like figure out with like my natural curiosity and not letting one one uh, aspect of history outweigh the other and, and learn all aspects of it. So I hope that answers your question. I love that. Um, I feel the same way too, Remar. Um, and I've had that experience too as well. What's interesting though, um, and I don't know if you did uh, had that Remar, in school we are taught um, Caribbean history. So one of the things is that Christopher Columbus discovered Jamaica, so to speak. And so we have, and you know, we learned about slaves, indentured servants, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So I know that knowledge about slavery and um, what that entailed. Uh, so I, you know, and as a child, I think um, that was just very hard for me to emotionally connect to. And it, it, I think it always will be, but so I think that played into why I didn't want to um, engage in that in our history here in in the states. And to what Remar said as well, my children, I didn't want to lose my Caribbean heritage. So my cho I taught more about that, and my children are more um, connected to that. Um, sad to say than. American history, you know, they're born and raised here, but they have a more connection to, they have a greater connection to Caribbean, their Caribbean roots. I think that's, for me, I feel like in school in the Caribbean, we were taught a lot of our history, whereas in America, it's not, I don't yeah. see it like really taught as much um, because I had a, a very knowledgeable uh, history professor that taught us like everything about slavery where uh, like you talked about the original inhabitants of, of our island, indentured servants, right. slavery, colonization, all that stuff. And then I get here and I'm talking to my wife and she's like, I have no idea. She grew up, she was born and raised in Colorado Springs. And a lot of, we know that schools here don't teach the true history, history. Or, or even mm -hmm. any of that history. So it's like, as I am going on this journey to kind of teach myself, so I like research that stuff, she's coming along with me and she's like learning all these new things that um, she didn't get taught in school. And that's a perfect segue into why we 
don't really know a whole bunch about Juneteenth, right? Yeah. Why we don't know about it. Uh, I, I think that's perfect. I, I kind of want to ask the question about Christopher Columbus, but I'll save that for another day. <laughs> that's another topic. Uh, that another episode. Another yes. episode. <laughs> or, or maybe at the end, maybe a bonus episode, right? right. And get, get people to pay for it. Just joking. Um, <laughs> Philip, <laughs> with, with that being said, well, what's your history on Juneteenth, right? I mean, obviously you grew up, you're, you grew up and were raised out here in Idaho. And, and we know how history ha- is taught in regular schools, not to mention Idaho schools. So, but you have a, a, a historic family, basically, uh, that I know you guys are ingrained in your blackness. So mm-hmm. won't you tell us about, about what, uh, what went on with you growing up and then kind of go into uh, some of the ideas you have around Juneteenth in general, kind of some of the things you expounded on earlier. So in brief, it's like an amalgamation of what was just said. So in direct contrast to what Sharon experienced, um, I had a total disconnect from anything historically um, regarding the enslavement of black people that took place in Idaho, other than the, the occasional Confederate um, monument, flag, whatever, but because it's so disconnected, it doesn't elicit the same response that it would from like my stepfather who's from Georgia when we go down to there. It's entirely different. You have a constant reminders of this, the power system that existed. But having grown up in Idaho, my grandmother's people were from Arkansas who left Arkansas like three or four years after the biggest lynching in Arkansas history. So my grandmother is your um, resident black revolutionary in my family who from the minute I turned like 12 or 13, schooled me on black revolutionary thought ad nauseum. And she, um, and I, I took a, a liking to it. So she was kind of my um, mentor who just inundated me with black history, starting like with Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, um, oh, wow. James Baldwin. And then I really got geeked out on like the Pan-Africanism. I had my big Garvey medallion that had the, the Jamaican uh, <laughs> 50 cent piece on as a kid. So yeah. I look at Pan-African history probably directly because I grew up in Boise, Idaho. The mm-hmm. absence of anything black wow. whatsoever and having a grandmother who really pushes this black revolutionary narrative. Um, I would go to her house and just geek out she would send me home with books, and I'll be the first to admit, I didn't understand half of it the first couple of years I was exposed to it, but it became almost like an obsession. I got, I had the final call, the Mer- Louis Farrakhan's paper mailed to Boise, Idaho, back when I was in seventh and eighth grade. Wow. I, mean, I was just on a really big pan-African vision because um, it was such a unique experience because I grew up here. My, uh, my parents in Seattle, so we went there all the time. So I was always on that uh, black knowledge front. And so, yes, my, my, my primary concern was American black history. But because of the negativity of it, I wanted to look into, okay, what are aspects of our history that are not based on being chattel slavery or struggle? Because we've done more than this. And that's when the pan-Africanism gets into it. So Juneteenth was spoken of. I looked at it, yeah, okay, cool, I get it, we're, we're freed from slaves, but what's the institutional impact and what was going on elsewhere? I mean, I was a kid when I learned that Jamaica, like, freed their slaves, was it 40s or, like, 19, 1848 or 1850, somewhere in there, well in advance of America. Haiti did it first. Why were we so late to the fight? But, again, it was because of that late, that, that lack 
of African history or black history that I was afforded in Idaho that I just straight nerded out and got on my own. Yeah, you reminded remind me of myself in in the nineties with PE and 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 wearing my medallion. You know, I had at my fist, all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So tell us. I I know since I served with you on the board, and thank you uh, for letting me help out. Um, I already know what you plan on doing for your exhibit coming up uh, next, and and I know it correlates to to the whole Juneteenth thing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So I think Juneteenth's a beautiful day, but I think it's the beginning of the era of terror. That we we mistakenly think that um, yes, it's a beautiful day that should be celebrated, but it's what came thereafter that we need to rectify. So I don't know that celebration always serves the purpose of it's not coupled with tangible, powerful action that will rectify the systems and the institutions we're putting in place thereafter without just haranguing and bad-mouthing those institutions, coming up with actual um, ways to rectify them on a tangible, palpable way that um, is economically viable on top of it because you can't just expect some magic bullet to come out of nowhere to fix this. So Juneteenth is beautiful, yes, but then right after Juneteenth, we had Reconstruction, where the federal government tried to force the inclusion of blacks in society, and then we had like our biggest gains made in history, blacks being elected to Congress, blacks being elected mayor, blacks um, taking ownership of businesses, blacks having land, blacks being afforded this American promise that had been denied them previously, at the behest of the federal government to ensure that it happened. I mean, they literally dispatched troops to these areas to make sure blacks were not wrongfully left out of the foray. And that's why I chuckle whenever I hear somebody say states' rights, they're not aware of the historical notion of saying that. It's because the federal government is utilized when the states deny those rights that are guaranteed to people, whatever those people are, whether it be an ethnic issue, sexual orientation issue, whatever, that's when the feds step in because that's the fail safe to ensure we get what was promised. Um, okay. That's what was done until a deal was cut. It's called the Great Betrayal. The, the Southern uh, Confederate states cut a deal with the president, I apologize, I can't think of his name, to withdraw federal troops. And then therein began the era of mass incarceration, lynching, and um, the race riots to wipe out any chance at thriving that black people had achieved up to that time. And then the federal government continued that line of control by using um, laws and systems to keep us down, such as segregation, the highway system to divide the neighborhoods, um, defunding of our schools, uh, making sure we could not get loans so you cannot establish generational wealth. I could go on and on, but it's that moment in time when Reconstruction ended um, that took place right after Juneteenth that we really need to look at, okay, what worked in that, you know, I think it was like 10, 12 years of Reconstruction that gave us these gains and how that was undone by destroying everything we'd accomplished. Philip, I always enjoy listening to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, I, I just have a, a quick question on on Juneteenth because I know I know that you know we're talking about a lot of different things here, um, but I don't think everybody really knows what Juneteenth actually is, and I I, I don't want to be the person that comes out and tries to explain it because I don't really know very much about it. But reading on this, you know, it's, it's saying that it's the Independence Day or Freedom Day um, that commemorates the June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five announcement of abol abolition of slavery 
in Texas and more so the, conf the, the Confederate States. Um, if, is, that part, is that correct? Correct. Okay. It's, it's, and it's when General Granger actually went into Texas, again, federal troops, to force, what was the army actually, but to force the state to stop practicing slavery in Galveston, Texas. Because yes, the emancipation had taken place. Yes, they had lost the war, but that doesn't mean we're just going to stop doing what we've been doing. So right. it took sending a, a, a martial effort in the army to go into Galveston, Texas as the last place that was being practiced and stopped it and said, okay, now you're free. Okay. And there, there was an addendum on there and it said outside of Native American lands. Now, is that just saying that because the Native Americans didn't have slaves in Texas? And no, I caught flack for this a couple of years ago because the Cherokee were uh, a vast enslaver of black people. Um, just was it four years ago? I can't recall which band, but they just voted for all people who were descendants of slaves that had once had um, tribal status and were eligible for the benefits that had black blood were now kicked out of the tribe. So uh, Native Americans aren't, not all the bands, but many of the bands practice slavery as well. And that's often forgotten. And they actually practice slavery um, a bit after Juneteenth. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, Just because, I, I mean, it was still on the reservations and whatnot. I mean, it was not anywhere near the... Um, I might have misspoken. I mean, after emancipation, pardon me, after my emancipation proclamation, they were still practicing it because they didn't have federal oversight on the Native American lands. Yeah. Philip, was it President Rutherford Hayes? That sounds right. Thank you. Man, Philip, you are a wealth of knowledge. I did not know half the stuff that you just talked about, and I had to, like, I was like, what president was that? But that was, man. So what... What would you say practically for people that, for people like myself that pretty much just learned about Juneteenth, practically, uh, I don't want to use the word celebrating, but celebrating, how should we celebrate this uh, significant time in history? How would you say that we should practically do that? Of course, acknowledge it and celebrate whichever way, whoever deems, however you deem necessary, because I've never been getting in front of somebody having fun, but couple it with tangible action to rectify whatever social ill is related or any social ill, because we don't need to make it simply a, oh, I'm only going to help you if you've been um, destitute and you're a direct descendant of slaves, then I'll help you. But if you're not, I have nothing to do with it. It's that it's that notion of abject poverty because you've left it out of this, been left out of the system, regardless of your ethnic background. It's that system of if you've never lived in a house you've owned, so you haven't been afforded the opportunity to pass it down to your kids, which also directly influences your likelihood of being able to go to college. I mean, all these different things that are kind of confluent, that have this confluence of variables that lead to success work to rectify those. I, we're fortunate enough to be in a city that doesn't have this generational institution of oppression that is also um, overly wealthy and, and matched up with people who want to rectify these issues. And we can do it here on a really palpable, duplicatable level if, in fact, you do it um, not predicated on so you must be A, B, C, or D first. Because the problems aren't what they were then. Now they're kind of conflated. It's not as simple as, oh, 
you're from the Caribbean, so you don't count because you weren't um, enslaved in the U.S. Or my people left Arkansas, you know, many moons ago, so we haven't been enslaved for generations. Are we going to make that line delineation like, oh, you're poor, but you weren't enslaved, so you don't matter? No, our issue is rectifying poverty or scarcity of goods or um, the ability to live in a house that's somewhat affordable is not eating up your entire um, paycheck. Your, your chance to really move up the social ladder, and we can rectify that locally without hang-ups of, oh, you're not part of us. This is the historical narrative of how it was done to us in this case, but this is what we're going to do to extend fixing this to everybody because when the um, beehive does well, the bee does better as well. Right, right. And, and with that being said, Philip, let, let's kind of go into some of the, some of the things that uh, – happened to our people or to the slaves uh, post uh, emancipation, right? Uh, some of the laws, some of the vagrancy laws, some of the uh, way later down the line, redlining. Um, and then also some of the advances. I mean, what, two days ago or was it yesterday? We, we talked about the, the what happened in, in Tulsa, right? Uh, the massacre in Tulsa, and, and there are many others, what, like 32 others. How many other right. uh, massacres? So based on those things, because we were able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, quote unquote, <laughs> what did they do to keep us from continuing that process? Yeah, and see, and that's what I, my biggest beef is. Success is not like beholden on the character of a person. I mean, if we're lucky enough to live in America, there's a system in place that lessens the likelihood of your failing if you grow up in a place that has jobs, that has, you know, internal plumbing and education, right? But if you grow up in an America where you have that, and then we literally wipe it off the face of the earth, we murder all those in your town that were thriving, and then we put a system in place segregation legislatively and the highway district to ensure you will no longer have access to these things and then relegate you to second-class citizen status we're ensuring your demise there's a reason why whenever any people takes over another people the first thing they do is ostracize and insulate them from everybody else whether it be modern-day political struggles over land whether it be the reservation system in Idaho, because at the same time where blacks were afforded the opportunity to thrive in Idaho, Chinese were wiped out and pushed out because once upon a time they were 30% of the population yeah. because they were seen to be as a threat. Blacks, we've never been more than even close to 1% of the state's population. So again, it's like, yeah, you're not a threat yet. We're not really concerned about you. So those same... Um, issues that come up as far as humans doing evil to each other we were such an inconceivable um, part of the population it just wasn't necessary in 1865 idaho passed exclusionary laws by 1872 um there was no mention of forbidding blacks from attending public schools in in idaho territory back then that's a hundred years before the vast majority of this country so that gives you literally a hundred year head start on black communities elsewhere on something as simple as just going to school or going to a um, properly funded school or the school equal to others in your area. Um, yes, Idaho had redlining, but not legislative segregation and not redlining to the extent that you had a concentration of black people only in one area. Yes, people are aware of the River Street District, which had the highest percentage of blacks, 
but the vast majority of blacks in Boise, Idaho did not live there. So it was this odd conundrum where a lot of blacks were there, where most blacks weren't there. And besides blacks, there were also Chinese, Italian, all other people looking to start at the um, uh, middle to lower end of the socioeconomic scale. They were climbing that scale. Again, that's dissimilar to the vast majority of America, other than like maybe Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, that you have this amalgamation of society that doesn't exclude and divide accordingly. So real quick, let's talk about some like right after uh, Emancipation Proclamation, right? Okay. Juneteenth, quote unquote, and, and, and the vagrancy laws, you know, kind of how did, how did that create a, a slave state? How did that create that problem that we're kind of talking about so when you no longer have the luxury of um free slaves after the one you buy and they reproduce and thereafter you gotta cheat you gotta fill that cheap labor source i mean that's capitalism at its finest and so when the federal troops were removed you said this passing of vagrancy laws all of these very odd kind of nitpicking laws to um justify an arrest of black people because they needed to fill that labor source because if nothing else in the South, in order to fill the, to, to pull those crops, in order to uh, keep that machine moving, you need cheap or free labor. So they had to find a way to fill that. And if you look statistically at incarceration rates, arrest rates, there's a direct correlation to the 13th Amendment being passed, the emancipation of slaves, Juneteenth, and then this mass incarceration of black people, especially in the South. And then that duplicated and went on elsewhere as well and became kind of a modus operandi as far as the U.S. goes. And then when you um, couple that, like I think it was the 60s or 70s, this privatization of um, institutions, of uh, prisons, when you have corporations literally investing in the incarceration of humans, it now becomes economically not just feasible, but viable and, and, and um, beneficial to incarcerate more and more. I mean, you, you've, you've um, made petty arrests and detaining somebody profitable. America in a nutshell, I mean, that's where we stand now, that I mean, once you're in that system, it's so easy to keep them in it. And again, you see them uh, leasing them out for labor, especially in the south of the big cities, for major corporations and paying them, what is it, like 25 or 37 cents per hour on average? For these government contractors, people are getting rich because again, you're dealing with the cross-section of society that nobody has spoken to speak on behalf of or say, hey, we, we emancipated slaves in the 30th Amendment, this isn't all right. But they forget that in that 13th Amendment, it says you will no longer hold somebody in bondage and have um, um, servitude um, and have uh, involuntary servitude unless they are a member of a penal institution. That's in that 13th Amendment. It's almost as if they were thinking ahead that, hey, that's cool. We'll free the slaves and then we'll just arrest a shortload of them and then enslave them in that way. And I wasn't even aware of that until about 10 years ago or 15 years ago where I started nerding out on the Constitution and looking to find exceptions that could be seen as um, specifically related to um, ethnicity and used as a way to exclude or, or, or protect a given people. And that second half of the 13th Amendment is quite eye-opening. Then why would they put that in there if they really insisted and were intent on ending slavery 
why would you add this caveat? And unless we put you in jail, we can enslave you all we want. Right. And and you look at uh, freed people coming off of uh, uh, any any type of encampment, and and they have nowhere to go. Right. We weren't we weren't afforded uh, fifty or what what are forty acres in the mule, acres right? And a mule. So, exactly. So, and then if you look at the other European settlers, they were given land rights or they were allowed to go go out west or wherever and, and, and homestead. We weren't afforded that opportunity. And so where did we go? We didn't have anywhere to go. So we would hang out in the cities and sleep where we could sleep and, and try to get work where we and could get work. Ordering laws, vagrancy laws, um, literacy tests like, oh, you, it's just it, it's the machine. Once again, it was so efficient to ensure that we're not going to give you any means to achieve, but we're going to punish you for your inability to do so. And if you're not actively doing something, whether you have a home, a house, a job, I mean, most slaves took work on the plantation they worked at just a year before. Because where else could they go? It wasn't like all of a sudden they were going into a workforce that valued their skill set to put them to work. It was it was it was a um, ingenious devilish program to turn somebody loose but not give them any means to do anything and you mentioned homesteading here's a lesser known fun fact blacks actually could homestead we just weren't afforded that opportunity more often than not because number one we didn't know we could number two you still had to go go through the process to be afforded the land to do so because the other half of my clan that's how they got to idaho they were out in canyon county they were farmers they were homesteaders. And yeah, but that narrative as far as black history, um, as far as American history, you are correct. The vast majority of blacks were not part of that because we were kind of left out or not even told of that possibility. And then to flip that coin, right? There, it, It's not like we were all not capable of doing that. There were quite a few that did take advantage of the laws that did go out and create their own communities and that did become uh, wealthy and did uh, go out there and perpetuate the American dream. But once they achieved that, cut it out what from, <laughs> cut it out from, I'm again, it's, it's, I'm not trying to be glib or, or, or be cute, but the, the beauty of the American system is, and the beauty of capitalism is that it, it installs a system that perpetuates itself with very little action needed to keep it going and nobody ever questions it. So no one even answered, asked these kind of questions until this supposed racial awakening that America has been going through the last year or so to even stop and look at how did we get here? I mean, my, I get a little short with people I'm like, well, what can we do? What should we do? I know it was this bad. No, you've known it was this bad. We've been speaking about this since 1964. The first time you claim to want to rectify these issues. These problems have been brought to the table time and time and time again. Mm -hmm. um, this last push um, post George Floyd and the gentleman being shot in Georgia, um, all these things, these these corporations pointed up supposed promising billions upon billions of dollars to close this gap. And I read an article last week, I believe it was the Atlantic, 1% of all those funds that have been promised have been actually allocated and seen anything put to work to do anything. But at the same time, what specifically are you going to do other than um, talk about it to rectify it? I mean, it's going to take some some profound investment capital 
from mortgages to job training to um, community colleges to, I mean, an, an all expensive approach, like, like a new deal times 10 to really cut down this have and have nots, especially in a time when the gap is so wide and, and coupled with this okay with anti the other that America is going through, that whatever school of thought you, you, you um, deal with, it's now okay to hate the other school of thought simply because it's different. I have a question. I'm just trying to, to think of an education side of this um, because I literally learned about something you mentioned a, a while back, which was redlining. I learned about it on Monday. Can, can, can you just briefly explain what redlining is? Because I did, the one thing I've learned today is that I didn't realize it apparently started in 1934. So you're talking 70 years after when my grandparents, okay, my, my grandparents had a cross burn on their yard. My mother was five. And we live in, they live in the North End. We live in the North End now, right? The North End is like the bastion of uber liberalism <laughs> in, in Boise, Idaho, right? And they had redlining laws back then. That had been the 50s. And that was in North End. In the 70s, I know a couple people on board bought houses. They still had redlining, redlining laws in the covenants in their given neighborhoods saying you could not sell your house to an A, B, C, or D. And typically, in Idaho especially, Idaho has an anti-Chinese streak that is beyond any, any of its anti-other streak on a on a um, direct violence perpetrated, other than maybe the removal of Native Americans from their land, the Indian Removal Act, that Idaho has this long history of not just excluding but murdering Chinese um, since Idaho became a territory. So you could not sell or rent to Chinese, black, um, back then, I think they called it Mongolian because that was kind of like the lump for whomever. And it was actually in neighborhood covenants. You didn't have legislative laws passed saying you couldn't like um, segregation from the state level. But all these little different neighborhoods had covenants saying you could not sell your house to. And then in case that didn't catch, you had um, not so much in Idaho, but elsewhere, you had mortgage companies that would not um, – give mortgages to certain areas of town which oh it just so happens that's where the non-white people live especially the black people so it's that system once again at play that keeps you where we decide you need to be and you don't have much of a choice to get out of that um that's one thing that i'm not trying to say that idaho was some racial utopia but i have the mortgage for my great-great-grandfather's land that we still my mother owns it's a block off of warm springs the mortgage was satisfied, satisfied in either 1912 or 1917. There was a bank in Boise, Idaho, affirming that this black man had the right to this land and this lot and this address and gave him the paperwork to say it's his. And it was on record with them, too. So a black man owning land in America with a financial institution saying they rightfully will back them and protect it is far and few between. And again, the same year that Tulsa was torched was the exact same year that, that same man built the physical church that is now the museum so this notion of the treatment of blacks in america isn't uniform um in these places where there were so few of us that we were not deemed a threat and again i'm not saying it was utopia but i will never conflate the experience that the south went through the major urban centers went through with segregation that we had in idaho because we were afforded the opportunity to own land and we had um, uh, 
schools that were not segregated after 1872. Um, I'm glad you're talking about this because this is what I've been thinking on a personal level on what can I do? And it just seems daunting. It seems like a mountain that will will never get to the top of in my lifetime or maybe my grandchildren's lifetime. And um, you know, maybe, maybe great grandchildren. But when I ask myself, what can I do? It seems like I, I feel as if I can't fight City Hall because, you know, at least that's, that's how I feel right now. We, yes, we're doing things to make changes, especially as you said, this, uh, it's, it's now a thing, you know, post George Floyd, everybody's waking up and it's unfortunate that something has to happen for us to move forward, but that's how it typically is, you know, until my, my example to equate that to is, you know, you have a four way stop and people get killed there all the time until a politician or somebody, um, you know, in the community that's high up that is affected personally, then there's a stoplight there. You know what I mean? So, um, and then my question is, what can I do in helping to change these laws at, at such a high level because they are, they're in place for so long. Like what, what, what can I do? It just, okay. you know, I'm just, I'm just talking off the top of my head. I've been feeling this way for quite some time that, you know, it feels like I can't fight city hall. What, how is this ever going to change? So you have the situation, let, let, where, let, you know, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, when Philip answers, I'd like him to answer in two ways. Uh, locally, Idaho, because since you're, you're local, Suzanne, and, and also nationally. Sorry. Okay. Sorry you know, so. I'm, I'm thinking about most recently, um, did they pass, uh, was it in Georgia or wherever, that you can't offer somebody any oh, water yeah. or something like that? And, and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, we're not lynching people, but that's right up there. <laughs> you know, like, how can you not offer somebody some water in a line when they're going to vote? What does that tell you? You know, that tells me blatantly that you're putting systems in place. Well, and, and, and I hear a question is, but it's been the question that we hear time and time again, and I'll be the first to admit I have an overly simplified approach to it, and it might be um, tainted with a bit of arrogance and a bit of um, dismissiveness because my first concern and my like 98% of my energy is local because all tangible palpable change really happens locally. And they, we can we can connect with those locals in those given areas, but for me to lose any sleep about it, I apologize. I'm not diminishing their pain, but unless I'm going to actively invest in that fight, familiarize myself with the um, variables at play, because I know nothing of Georgia other than my stepfather's from there. We go there every once in a while to visit his family. I don't know that that structure is entirely different, right? Right. Equally, I do know that Boise has a disproportionate um, this 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 uh, equation. If you look at those who are financially capable to help alleviate the problem, whether it be corporations, private citizens, um, trust fund babies, whatever the case may be, people who are actively engaged and wanting to rectify the issue and honestly are what you just said. It's like, where do I start in comparison to 
the sheer number of people, and I'm not excluding this by race, I'm saying just from the um, the end of the socioeconomic scale that haven't had the chance to thrive, regardless of background, but especially those issues that are related to um, racial disempowerment, that small number is so much smaller just because of the demographics of Boise, Idaho, that you can really on a tangible level implement ways to fix this by first we have the data is, is purely available, right? We look at what the problem is currently like. So if you want to rectify something specifically like uh, schools or education, right? Then you can look at the schools that are underperforming, see what the teachers do or don't have, ask them what is needed, and then actively engage there. So it's not as big as like this amorphous, how do we fix this whole thing? It's cutting it into small achievable pieces that is coupled with your skill set and your um, access to those who have the acumen to address it. Like me dealing with anything that has to do with um, the arts, can't help you. I'm not an artistic guy. I don't have any 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 knowledge in that area. People I'm around for the most part have never expressed to me a, a want to be in ballet or whatever. So I just wouldn't be big of a help there. But there's other avenues that I can rectify or have people in those places work at what you are good at now or what you have interest or what you have access. Like everybody on this call is part of the corporate world. I worked for options once upon a time. And regardless of what you guys have or have not seen been done in the last three or four years, it's exponentially greater than anything Albertsons did. The, I think I worked for like almost like 15 years that um, even considering this, this question, right? But you were all in a place that if you're trying to um, increase hiring or mentorship or uh, college, I mean, probably high school, um, what's it called? When they come and work internships, whatever, you're in a place to literally make that happen just by pulling the trigger on a corporate level. Working with a school, a grade, start with a sample size of 20 kids and get it done. And then when you do it, you run the tests on it, three, six months, did it work, did it not work, what failed, and then we go a little bit bigger. I and mean, we have the means to do it as long as we don't allow the Herculean lift to um, cause apathy. Everything starts with these few initial steps. I mean, I, I'm not like trying to toot my own horn or, or act like I'm great, but I didn't learn to box or get very astute at boxing the first year or two or three years into it. It took like 15 to 20 to get to the point where it's so ingrained in your brain and the systems are so in place firing in such a way that, oh, this is easy. Nothing's easy at the impetus of trying to learn it or trying to fix it. And yeah, we're going to fall flat on our face. We're going to run into people that just want to be on the news and make Facebook posts or, or vilify the other side. That's just not me. My only job is I'll take the loss in public if it will get us, if we can in private meet to get this done because the greater good will be achieved. Those are the keys to getting things going because the next person will then see that and like, well, wait a minute. If she did this, I know she's good at A and B, but she knows nothing of C and D. I'm going to go do this and ask her. I mean, and then just do what you're good at, what you have access to. And don't start with, I'm going to fix a hundred people. Fix two. I mean, two kids can make one hell of a difference. And the, and the initial steps of COVID, um, when everything shut down, we very quickly, um, uh, Albert was part of this, the uh, Idaho Black History Museum delivery service that we got with like three or four soup kitchens locally and got volunteer drivers. 
it started off with just trying to feed a couple people to see what we could do. Ended up 244 people with absolutely no cost to anybody, just coordinating deliveries of food. There was no paperwork needed, no whatever. They had to put their name, their address, dietary guidelines, and family, you know, how many people they needed. It was a simple, easy solution, and then we built from there. That's how you rectify any problem. You can't come in and assume you're going to cure all types of cancer at one time, but we can try to slow the spread of cancer initially and then figure out how to cure it, but you can't just come in and assume you're going to fix the whole thing in one step. Fix your piece of the puzzle because then it's duplicatable. Yeah. Somebody else will do the same. You'll inspire. Everybody's yeah. kind of inundated in, in, in uh, atrophy and just uh, paralysis right now. No, that that's great insight. Um, great insight. Thank you. Yeah, Remar, you got you had your hand up. I do, but you had two things that you wanted him to answer. Did he get those for you? I, I think he did. Uh, and and if I if I kind of simplify it, make sure that I heard what he what he said is number one, uh, act within your ability and within your air, fear of influence and and what it, whatever your uh, strength is. Right? Don't don't think that that you're going to save the world just save save the person next to you in your cubicle right and then with our with our arg i mean that's kind of how we're kind of built you know we we want to we we want to save the entire corporation but we can't we've got to look at uh, a couple of areas lots of hands up i was going to ask a question let me let me hit you remar and then paul you're up next right well this was more of a personal question for uh paul because you are not well, Philip. Sorry, not Paul. There's two P's. There's two P's, and I was like, "What is happening?" Um, you are very knowledgeable. How do you do your research to make sure that you you're getting the accurate information to pass along? So, as weird as this sounds, um, I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, I literally like always have an ear plug in my ear. And I have an audiobook going always. And I'm, I'm a bit of a polymath in the sense that I like really um, like to consume information. I don't really do joy. I don't really do, um, oh, I want to learn about whatever. It's strictly the consumption of salient information. And so I don't read fiction. I don't read hot topics by whomever. I don't read like whatever the current um, false dichotomy as far as like how we're going to fix this problem. I pull, I mean, I like nerd out on historical data on, on um, like a, an economist's approach to whatever problem. A, you know, like when I was on the board of catch, I didn't know about housing first. So I just went and nerded out on all the research thus far on housing first. Just, do, but that's for lack of a better word, fun to me just because I like to have a ton of information and you can start crossing things and see that, ooh, in theory, your idea is great, but the 14 times they try to practically apply it, it's never works. You know what that tells you about your idea? It's garbage because it's not realistic. It's not going to happen. And it's not that I'm vilifying it. I'm simply saying that in these 14 times they've tried, it doesn't work. And so like even looking at a perfect example, drug control, right? Portugal legalized all drugs years ago because they got some economists together to figure out how we're going to fix our drug problem because they were just falling off a cliff. Economists came in and said, um, legalize everything, but use the money you use to stop drugs, to provide all the resources to get people off them that they choose to. 
in like five years' time, drug problem was gone. But they went out, they really looked at all these variables and realized that drug use is, is reflective of a deeper issue. Yeah. 2-3% of those people really have mental issues that are probably going to always be on drugs. But the vast majority is compensatory for something else. So if we fix that, we fix the underlying problem. Same thing holds true for social ills. Quit worrying about what they think, um, where they're from, what whatever, what you assume led them to that. Number one, ask them, that helps. Number two, look at what they need access to, what they don't have access to. Then, okay, who do I know, which in a place as small as Boise, it's a little easier. How do I alleviate that gap? And like, I don't really watch TV except for my kid at night. We watch like before she goes to bed, whatever. But um, I literally like, I read on average like four to six books every week. Wow. But I'm lazy. I read them by listening to them in my ear. And yeah. you can put them on now to the point I can go about two times the level, the, the speed length on Audible that you select. And you'll be shocked of the amount of information you can just catalog by doing that every day. Yeah. Even if you only allocate like two or three hours of information, you'll get a book done every like eight to 11 hours, depending on the speed you're listening to it. It's amazing the amount of information you'll accrue. And then always on the individual too i mean that that's kind of your that's, that's, yeah, that's your, how i take that's how i take yeah. people may not necessarily be able to to uh take that same way uh-huh. you talked about portugal just now is that similar to what the netherlands did because i know that pretty much everything is legal over there i've heard that one but they didn't have like this destitution of crime going around everything else okay the reason why i'm keen on portugal because they were at the negative end of the stick and we're looking at how the hell do we fix this? And that approach is just so nuanced. As opposed to Netherlands, let's just be honest, Netherlands have like always had this happy-go-lucky existence as far as the country goes. That they haven't faced these expansive social ills that other parts of that I'm aware of. I'm not trying to oversimplify, but that I'm intimately yeah. aware of. Yeah. Well, thank you. Adam, did you have anything? I, I mean, first off, I appreciate all the history that you always bring to these conversations. Um, it's always very educational. And I mean, at first I got stuck on the fact, I mean, you didn't say this per se, but highways and how they were used to segregate the population. I mean, that, you know, the highways were built, what, like the mid fifties and on. And it, everything that you said today is just kind of tied it all together with me. Just the progression from the emancipation proclamation to doing the restoration and then how the system was built to kind of rebuild i mean the same effects of slavery and it it keeps on going on today really i mean it's gotten a little bit better but you just take a look at some of the laws that are being passed in in certain states with uh you know redistribution under the guise of protecting you know, uh, voting rights, uh, election integrity, and, you know, even you got some discrimination, discriminatory stuff coming out of Florida with their transgender bills to protect women's sports. I mean, it's just all the, some days I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad people, but there's still a lot of good people. I mean, you guys give me hope. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. I, I, when you mentioned that transgender bill, I, I kind of laughed. I, I know it's probably meant for adults, but I played on a baseball team where 
our second best pitcher was a was a female, was a girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, and, I- and we integrated we integrated our baseball teams with 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 girls that wanted to play baseball. And at first we were all uncomfortable, but once she played, we didn't care. But anyway, that's a different subject. And, and yeah, the transgender get... one was to prevent the genetic males from dominating female sports. Right, right, right. Like the German, like the Germans in in the AD Olympics, right? So I understand. Sure. What it, what hey, I'm German, want. man. I take offense to that. I'm German too. You are? Uh, yeah, actually, I am. Cool. So, um, shoot. I had something. Oh, another thing you, you kind of mentioned, Adam, you, you said the, the highway system. We, we also the railways, right? Uh, train tracks. You no. Know, and somebody says, oh, they came from the other side of the tracks. Uh, even to this day, it's the same thing. Uh, you, you can go to any community in the south and, you know, one side of that railroad line is black and the other one is not. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be poverty either. It just it's just color for the most part. So. And I think that's the biggest point, right? That the beauty of the system and the machine is it's innocuous to those who are not aware of it because they've never been controlled by it. And that's 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 the most ingenious weapon you can make is one that goes on undetected but keeps everything in place as it should be, keeping those in power in power, and that everybody else even those who are at the bottom of the rung aren't even aware of how or why they're still there. And the two sides never connect. I mean, again, that's why we um, ostracize and separate people because if in fact these conversations start to take place and you dissect it systemically and not getting into what the other party has or has not done, but really looking at the system at play that um, I reverse engineer it, so to speak, how do we get here? then you can arrive at a really tangible, palpable solution. But as long as we continue to pretend like it's an issue of bootstraps or lack of bootstraps, or um, you didn't have the heart to suffer like I did, or whatever the case, whatever current you know, trend makes people feel better about doing it on their own, we're never going to fix it. And at the same time, if we don't get a, co- a collaborative effort to do so, this is not a black problem. This is not a Hispanic problem. This is not a, oh, I can only talk about what's affecting us. The system was put in play by those other than the affected parties. So I sure to God hope you have their interest and their efforts to fix it because most revolutions that are successful aren't done solely by the um, party that's being impacted and held back. You need buy-in, even as from a minority of those who are in power, to decide if we want to fix this or we want to change this. Otherwise, you squash it, you kill it, you rewrite the history books, and it's gone. And, and really what you're speaking to is classism. And, and one of the questions that I always ask people um, is, why did Martin Luther King die? Why was he assassinated? There you go. And, and no one really has that true answer. They always think it's because of desegregation and all oh, no. these other things. He died for the, the Poor People's March. Poor People's he Campaign died. terrified yeah. the power holders of America. Right. And they said if he could do what he did with black folks and get that little bit of respect, as much as we hate him, we will take care of him. We will take him out. And it's the same with Malcolm. Malcolm died from his own people rather rather than, uh, uh, well, I, I guess that's a whole another conversation. But there, there's a little bit to that, right? We, we kind of did it to ourselves in a way. Um, but 
the whole point is uh, people like to to quote Dr. Martin Luther King all the time and, and say this is why he died. He died uh, over the, the, the poverty initiative, uh, bringing people together to fight against poverty. And if, if all the poor white people, all the poor Hispanic people, if all the poor black people came together and, and started demanding the wages that they deserve, for example, he died at the uh, union um, uh, gathering for trash collectors trash who majority, majority black at the time and didn't get a good wage. Right now, if you were to look at uh, unions and trash collectors, they make a very good, hefty sum of money. You can ask any community, and they do. And he was a part of that, right? So you look at uh, what happened with our, our COVID, right? We gave a little bit of extra money to the to the working class that lost their jobs. And now they're like, why am I working for pittance? I need to be earning enough to to make a, a, a livable wage. You know, I shouldn't have to depend on tips. You know, there's something that I found out about tips that was actually instituted against us again. Exactly. Right? That, was, I, that has black roots to it. Yeah. Right. The, the, the reason why uh, workers inside a restaurant are, quote unquote, tipped and not in Europe, but only in America is because that was their excuse to pay black people less money or no money. And then you could tip if you want to give them a little bit of extra money. But and, and they kept that in there. And, and most people don't understand that uh, restaurant wages were designed to keep poor slash black folks down because we took those types of jobs because that's the only kind of opportunity we had. I mean, you can speak into that a little more if you, you, you have more information on that. Uh, I bet you hit it completely on the head because I was nerding out about like some of these different um, capitalist ideals that are, I guess, in America, but don't exist in other capitalist societies. And that was one of the first ones I came across was the notion of tipping because in Europe, they do not tip at all because you're paid a livable wage. And in America, it's been it's been utilized as a way that, oh, we'll pay you three bucks an hour because we have to. But you can keep all your tips. And it's a means of control. And as, as Elmer said, if we quit looking at things, I mean, I'm not saying the colorblind approach is completely asinine. But if you can if you argue it as far as classism or about the notion of um, to, uh, the socioeconomic impact, people tend to see it a little more, provided you can do it in a, in a fiscally responsible manner, because then people tend to, they can't colorize the, the resolution. When, when they see that the poor white guy in, in the Bible Belt, or Rust Belt, is living very similar to the poor black guy in the inner city, you realize it's, it's deeper than the color issue. Now, how they got there is reflective of the color issue, but poor is poor. We need to rectify the poor issue, and those other problems will work out along the way, not by and large, but majority. It's always enlightening, um, Philip, to be in your presence and, and um, listen to you, learn from you. It's, it's always enlightening and enjoyable. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, Thank thanks you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been... Wow. It's been awesome. It's been absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to us. Um, if you want to reach us, get in contact with us, you can reach us at aaalc at albertsons.com, aaalc at albertsons.com. Leave a comment. Um, for those of us that are connected to Albertsons, uh, go ahead and check out our SharePoint site. We got some things coming up for Juneteenth. Um, Probably when this airs, Paul, when would this air? Probably 
in a, in a week a week or so from now. So it'll be right around Juneteenth, right? Yeah, um, hopefully we'll, we'll probably uh, get it out on the 11th. So hopefully a week before. Okay, so perfect. We, we've got some things on our, our site that you guys can uh, get some more information, some historical information. And if you want to reach out to Idaho Black History Museum, let's say you're in the neighborhood driving through, how can we get in touch with you, Philip? Um, they're actually put up a new site as we speak, ibhm.org, um, or email, it's kind of a long email, request.information at ibhm.org. And we will be, I'm uh, sorry, next week open Wednesday nights, Friday, Saturday, 11 to 3. Nice. Take advantage of the Live After Five crowd. Nice. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate you, as, as always. Thank Good you job. much for having us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks. This is Thanks awesome. So